Thank you for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Priya Rao, Executive Editor at Glossy. And today's guest is Marcia Kilgore, the founder of Beauty Pie, Bliss, Soap and Glory, and numerous other exciting business ventures. Welcome, Marcia. Thank you. So excited to be here with you today. So, Marcia, you're a longtime beauty entrepreneur. For those listeners who may not know that. I am dyed in the wool. (laughs) So tell us, kind of go back a little bit. Tell us a little bit about why you were interested in beauty. Were you a beauty junkie, a beauty consumer? Oh, you know, when I was younger, so when I was about 20, I lived in New York and I was a personal trainer trying to save up enough money to go to university, really. I wanted to go to NYU uh, part-time because I was supposed to go to Columbia. It's a long story, but my student loan plan fell through. And so I ended up just kind of working to pay my rent. And then I thought I'd save money to um, go back to school and ended up being a personal trainer, which was a very sweaty job. And in the sort of days of doing that, my skin would be uh, exposed to all the kinds of environmental stress that you get when you're running through Manhattan and it's hot and it's cold and, you know, you're taking people jogging seven times a day, and my skin got really bad. So one summer, instead of going to the Hamptons to be at the beck and call of my personal training clients, I decided to take a crash course in skincare. And then I realized that I really love doing facials. First, I learned how to fix my own skin, and then I learned how to fix other people's skin. And then I got really interested in cosmetic chemistry, and I did a little less personal training, a little more facials, and then it all ended up being facials, and then I learned all the other skills, and then I hired people, and I opened a a place in Soho. I think it must have been 1992 or so, called Let's Face It, which then turned into Bliss in 1996, which I then sold to LVMH in 1999. So that's the short version. <laughs> In between that, I did a lot of laundry, you know, towel sheets. Well, to go with the facials, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Marcia, go back. You know, it doesn't sound like things were very calculated back in the early 90s when you were starting this business and you were a founder led business and it was a skincare business. Um, and you ended up selling to LVMH within three years. Is that correct? Um, yes. For, I sold a majority percentage in, in three years. That number, only after three years of business, was reported to be $20 million. Is that correct? It's not correct. It was actually much, much more. Much, much more than that. And you won't tell us today? I won't. It's (laughs) one of those secrets that no one ever seemed to have found out. So I thought, why not keep it going? So when you were thinking about what you were offering the beauty business, the beauty customer, the industry at that time, it wasn't calculated. So what did you think you were doing? Oh, you know what? I always just think that if you provide something, A, that people want, right? And something that's democratic and friendly and really you're giving your all to your customer um, without hiding anything, um, then, then you win. And it's all about delivering something better, delivering something that makes her life better, something she looks forward to, something affordable that really has value. Um, it's not judgmental, um, then then you will you will always have success. So Soap and Glory was another one of those brands yes. that, you know, was um, kind of bridged the gap between this prestige category and this mass category that seemed to very much be at odds. Yes. You also sold that. I called it maspirational. Maspirational. That was, <laughs> that was my term for it. You know, when, when um, I sold uh, Bliss and obviously love cosmetics and love being in that industry and at the time, there were so many of the big retailers who were starting to do designer collabs, 
right? So you'd have Ray Kawakubo doing H&M and, you know, everybody was teaming up. Carl Lagerfeld. Yeah, mm-hmm. and they were all teaming up with these big mass retailers to do something that was more designer level, mm-hmm. right? But still very affordable. And I thought that would be so fun to do something like that, but in cosmetics. Um, and unfortunately, you know, at the time, it was still the beginning of the internet. It wasn't a time when you could really go straight D to C. So I wanted to create a brand that was, you know, the most bang for your beauty buck. It was still mass, right? It was a mass price point. But I wanted to make it really fun, super high quality, um, affordable, and kind of designery labels. So we did do something that was a little bit retro, but the the design on the packaging was really cool. And, you know, people really felt like they had a special piece of something that had a lot of personality, like, like it was a designer collab. So talk to us a little bit about that, because, you know, Bliss, although it was sold to LVMH at the time um, and was part of that company, you know, both of these brands and now even Beauty Pie, your current project, um, there was a certain level of democratization within these brands. You know, it was luxury, but it was for all. It was accessibility for all. You know, that wasn't necessarily where the beauty industry was even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but now everybody's talking about it. Well, I hope they are, because <laughs> that's what beauty pie is about. It's about getting her a bigger piece of the beauty pie. And I think, you know, there's been so much change in how, how we do reach consumers and how we can, you know, bring people on board with our brands. And I think that's really helped us. You see the the change in the zeitgeist and how people feel about themselves and about brands based on things like Instagram and things like Facebook, where their own personal brand is more important to them than any brand that they buy from, right? People spend more time on their page looking at who's liked their posts than they spend on any individual brand that they might purchase something from. At the same time, in beauty, people are still paying a 1,000% markup to have somebody else's name stamped on the side of their eyeshadow stick. And it really doesn't make sense if you think about it because the way the beauty industry works, and a lot of people don't know this, but... And a lot of people will know this, of course, listening to this podcast, but some may not, is that most luxury brands and then even non-luxury brands buy their products almost ready-made from, you know, 10, 15 great manufacturers that are third party that manufacture for all the brands. And you can choose their mass formulas or their middle formulas or their luxury formulas, and then you put your name on it and you choose your packaging and you go. It's a little bit different in skincare because you can add different levels of different active ingredients, but a lot of brands just pick up what these labs will show them because the labs actually do all the trend work. They do the new ingredient work. They, they're kind of one step or two steps before the brand. So product development as such, as an art, it's not really what you think it is. It's more about packaging and choosing than actually going in and creating. It's these third-party labs that create everything. So what about, what's your point of view on all of these D2C brands? And I know Beauty Pie is direct-to-consumer. Yes. Um, all these D2C brands talking about, you know, we know our customer, we're getting customer feedback, we're calling our customer base, and that's what's informing what's in the product, what's in the pipeline, X, Y, or Z. If they're going to all these, you know, 10 manufacturers that everybody's, you know, making all the other products, are they really forecasting trends? Are they really meeting customer demand? 
Well, we read customer demand based on people asking us on social media. Are you, you know, we'll actually do polls very often and just say, okay, people of the pie, tell us what we don't have that you want. And they'll list what they want and we'll look at who's, you know, we'll tally up the votes actually. And then we will pick the top three products and we'll launch those. And they usually do incredibly well. We, of course, also having been from the industry and I've been in the industry for the longest time. I used to have the Bliss catalog, right? So we know what women buy, what they want, what they need for their skin, what regular parts of their routines are, which ingredients they want to use every day, which things they might want to use once a week, you know, how much turnover. You might use retinols, you might use glycolic acids. You have the new types of acids that you have to incorporate. So there's always a little bit of movement in the trend ingredients. Um, But at the same time, you you will see new ingredients coming from the ingredient suppliers, which is a level below the labs, right? So you have probably 100 good ingredient, the raw ingredient manufacturers and suppliers who will spend years harvesting different plants and looking for activities that can be claimed on skin from these different active ingredients. And once they've got an activity that can be claimed, they will take their ingredient to market and they will sell that ingredient to any cosmetics company or lab that wants to buy it. And they have to sell it to everybody at the same time because otherwise they couldn't. And that's where the demand would be is when everybody wants it and when it comes to market. Yes, and you can't just do you know exclusive with one company because it wouldn't be broad enough to make any money off of all the R&D that you had to do for that ingredient because especially many different brands will use just a tiny percentage of that ingredient in a formula. So if you think you know, you're selling ingredient X for $1,000 a kilo and that's an expensive raw ingredient, right? A brand might put 0.1% of that product in their 50 mil cream. So it's not much of a kilo. So will you talk a little bit about that? Because Beauty Pie is so much is based so much on this idea of transparency, yeah. whether it comes to price, and we'll talk about that in a second, but also ingredients. So, you know, some of these ingredients, like you said, some of these other labels, you don't know how much you're getting of something, you don't know how much um, value added is for the end customer. What's your point of view on that? What's your take? You know, having been in the beauty industry now for almost 30 years, what I realized after I sold Soap and Glory to Boots was that it's It works backwards for the customer. So what you usually think about if you're a brand, and I'm sure anybody, you know, who's been in the beauty industry listening to this can relate, is you think about, okay, say your brand wants to make a face cream. And what you're going to do is say, well, we want to make an anti-aging cream and we want to have sort of an all-out bells and whistles anti-aging cream. Now what we're going to do is go look at brands who are positioned kind of like us, and we're going to go and look at how much those anti-aging creams cost. Right. And then we're going to make sure that ours costs about the same, maybe a little bit less because first price is right. And you want to make sure that you're you know, a little bit less than your competitors because you're going to be sitting next to them. And if theirs is 105 and yours is 99, maybe you're going to try and make yours for 99. Then what you'll do is say, okay, 99. Well, if I'm going to sell that $99 cream in a big retailer, like a big beauty retailer, I won't name any names, right? I'm going to take 70% off of that for their margin. So they're going to take somewhere between 60 and 70% of that, right? Right. Which means if they take 70, let's go kind of the extreme version, but it's not unheard of. That I just want to let everyone know that Marcia is drawing for me a piece of paper with this margin I uh, diagram. I am, <laughs> just because I want to get the numbers right. <laughs> but, okay, so I have $29 left, right? Or if they took 60%, I have $39 left to make that cream. Now, out of that $39, I now have to, you know, I have to pay my CEO. I have to pay a team of 12 people who go around the country doing training for the 
people who work in this large retailer, I have to pay their flights. I have to pay their travel. I have to pay their food, right? I have to pay our office and our lights and our advertising. And then this retailer is going to ask me for 800,000 free samples of this cream to give to their, you know, sampling initiative. And all of that comes out. And so probably what I have left in order to make this cream, we got to bring it in under $6 finished or else we won't be able to pay for all of this in between. Which means that when you buy a $99 cream, you're probably getting something that's worth about six bucks, including the jar, the box, everything. And I thought, having done this for 20 years, because it was the only way to do it, because you can't get mass distribution without these big retailers, I thought, you know what? This is so backwards. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go to my lab where I know there's this genius chemist and I want to make an incredible cream and I want to take all the ingredients from In Cosmetics, which is where you visit to find out all the new ingredients, and I want to put them in that cream at the clinically tested percentage. And I want to put things in that are actually symbiotic and work really well and synergistic, right? So if, if you put vitamin C in, you'll put vitamin E in because it works better together. If you put, you want, might want to put ferulic acid in it with your vitamin C because that'll work better together. You might want to put ceramides in with your retinol, but high levels. And I don't care. I don't want to care what the retail price is. I want to just make a great cream and tell her how much it cost me and she can buy it. So what are your products range for right now? Mm, I think, and I'm not so good at memorizing because we have dynamic pricing. And that means when we buy a larger, a larger um, order of something, if we go from 10 or 20,000 pieces, right, we'll get a lower price from the lab because we're buying in bulk. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's say our most expensive face cream comes from Switzerland. Um, it's called Super Healthy Skin Ultimate Anti-Aging Cream. It's extraordinary. And I think it probably costs about $14. But you couldn't put anything anything else in it. I mean, it's so packed with active ingredients. And it's 14 bucks. So how do you kind of explain that? I mean, customers, people. Must, be, right, customers yeah. must be shocked. Well, this is the thing. It is a little shocking. I mean, beauty editors didn't even understand. At the beginning, when I presented it to them, I said, look, here's what it actually costs to make. This might be what you normally pay, but this is what it actually costs to make. They kind of didn't believe it either. So I think there's a lot of education that still has to go on for people to understand, you know, how it works. I guess it's a little like Costco, but for luxury beauty coming from all the world's luxury beauty labs. So we go and edit and choose, but we also have done something a little more, I guess, like Netflix, where we've collaborated with some creators, sort of like a director, or, you know, who would do a Netflix series. For instance, we've had Frank Vogel from Firmanish, who's done a line of perfumes for us, which are stunning. And he also did Le Labo, right? He's done, uh, um, I think, some things maybe for Byredo. I'm not, uh, you know, he won't tell me everything, but he's one of the top perfumers in the world. So we did a collaboration with him, and he created the fragrances for us. And they, I think they cost $20 for a 100 mil bottle. So go back a little bit. When you're kind of explaining this to the customer, I mean, who is your customer shopping on Beauty Pie? I mean, even though it's a democratized concept, yeah. I mean, one would argue this may have to be a very educated, a very metro or affluent customer. Well, that's really interesting because at first, right, when we first came out and we started in the UK, so we've really focused on the UK for the last couple of years, just trying to get the supply chain right and make sure that we had enough, you know, we'd understand what our people 
going to buy the most of, the least of, what's going to move. You don't know really at the beginning. And this was like stepping off a cliff, right? Because you don't know if anybody's going to join, number one, because it's such a radical idea. So we kind of had to, and also we didn't know if the labs were going to, were going to actually supply us after they found out what we were doing with all that product that we had ordered. <laughs> because it's pretty radical. And, you know, I remember going to one of the big Italian labs. I had an 80-page slide presentation, and I was talking about all the different trends and how it's all about D2C. It's about transparency. You know, people and people, it's like brand me. I don't care about other brands that I buy from. And getting them to kind of come along on that journey with me. And at the end, thinking, oh, my God, they're going to kill me. Right? Because we're about to tell everybody what cosmetics truly cost to make. And in fact, they hugged me. They said they hadn't seen anything new in beauty for, you know, 20 years. Everybody comes in and they say, oh, look, we're going to package it in white. And the logo's going to be like this. And in that's, white. <laughs> yeah, and that's sort of the only difference that you see. It's all the same stuff, maybe a different packaging. Sometimes you get a different delivery system, a click pen, you know, like Touche Clot was really big because you clicked it out of this thing with a brush. But it's all the same stuff. So I thought this could be really different. This could allow women. So the fun part of being a, a beauty product developer is going to the labs and seeing all the stuff they've made and sitting there while they show you all these incredible products. And you're like, whoa. And then you get all these samples. You stick them in a bag. You get to go home with them. And I thought to myself, what if every woman could come and do this with me? How amazing would that be, right? To bring people to the lab. Obviously, you know, it's logistically impossible to bring hundreds of thousands of people into the back doors of the labs, but they can do it through Beauty Pie because you go in, you're a member, and then you can shop at the price that it costs us to buy and then store in the warehouse. Marcy, you said radical a second ago, but in some ways it's also considered subversive or maybe anti-establishment towards the larger beauty industry. You know, I had the idea for Beauty Pie and I thought, oh, wouldn't it be so great if we could just you know, develop all this stuff and show people what it actually costs to make. And to be honest, my first thought was, oh my God. First, I was super excited. Like all the hair on my body stood on end, which is usually the sign that I've had a great idea. And it was so exciting to think, oh, she can come with me to the factory, right? And then I thought, oh my God, I can't do this. Everyone's going to hate me, right? Everyone in the industry, Right. They're going to kill me if I do this because it's like letting the cat out of the bag. And then I thought, if I don't do it, I'm going to hate myself because I knew how many women would be so thrilled to be able to access this level of product for an affordable price. So how have competitors or other beauty companies responded? Have you gotten any flack? No. You know, I've had a lot of CVs. Or resumes. <laughs> a lot of resumes. A lot of people are really excited. But, you know, the only, you know, I listen, what we say is true, right? So if we're saying this is really what a product costs to make, it's true. We're totally transparent. No one can say that what we're saying is not true. If it wasn't true, you would have heard about it already, right? So you're hiring. We're hiring. We're hiring. Great people. Um, Beautypie.com. <laughs> We're on LinkedIn. You can send your CV. But yeah, really what I get is a lot of people saying, it's so exciting what you're doing. We love it. If you're hiring for this, that, or the other thing, please keep me in mind. Because it's a, it's a wonderful, exciting, big bazaar where everybody's happy and, you know, people are thrilled about a new product. And it's, you know, it's all, it's all good. It's, all, it's about delivering happiness, right? Well, what about delivering money? 
in terms for yourself? Well, eventually, it should be you know a very a very um, good business model because it's sticky, right? People have a membership; they love the product. We deliver great quality. Um, we keep it fun and interesting. So if you've got lots of members, eventually your overhead is covered and you should be able to make profit. This is not one of those weird internet businesses where we'll never make a profit. You know, it's not like Uber or something. We work. We're, it's not like we work because people actually pay for their products, right? So that part of it is zero margin, right? Then their membership, as long as we have a critical mass of members, then you know, after a certain point when we, we have covered our overheads and everything else should be profit on top of that. Have to ask, Marcia, any data on annual sales you'll let us in on? Well, see, this is where everybody gets very confused. Annual sales don't matter to us because our prices are really low. So we've had so many people say, well, what's your average basket? And it's like, well, our average basket is very low because we don't charge markups. <laughs> so it's kind of, it's like you got to Get your head around it being the exact opposite of anything that you ever, you know, if, if I said our annual sales were 50 million, right? Are they? No, not yet, but they will be. But, <laughs> but if they were, okay, you have to multiply that by 10 because we are charging a tenth of what a normal beauty company would charge for the same product. See what I mean? So it, it's, it's a whole different way of looking at the business because we've just cropped out all the markups. So it's, it's exciting though. So, okay. So on that note, Marcia, so what have your profits been like and what's your profitability like? We're not profitable yet. We just got started, but we will be. But people get are talking about, you know, they're tired of subscription models. They're tired of signing up for something like a Birchbox or a Dollar Shave Club sure. or Harry's. They're just kind of subscriptioned out. Yeah, we're not a subscription. Right. We're but, a membership. But, you know, being able to buy into that model of, you know, getting something, giving something, getting something every month or being a part of that, how do you get people to be enticed by that? Well, us is quite different in that you order what you need when you need it. So your membership actually gives you an allotment every month. So when you pay your 10 bucks or 20 or 30, whatever, however much you want a, a lot, it reserves you an amount of product. And we pretty much know how much of each product per member we're going to sell each month. So that's where the data and kind of the analytics and learning about how people shop over time has really helped us. And so if you don't want to shop every month, right, you can just pay in. You're paying into your part of the club and then your allotment builds and you shop when you want to. So you can save up all your allowance for Christmas if you want to and then buy everybody beautiful candles for $14 each. Or you can shop each month because it's a little treat for yourself and you can buy your skincare, your cleanser, or your perfume, or, or you might have a friend whose birthday it is and that's what you use your allotment on. So you're kind of paying in. It's a co-op, right? So you're paying in for the ability to shop against what you've, what you've contributed to the running of the club. But you're not just going to receive something. There is a very predictable recurring revenue stream happening here, though, even if customers may not be getting something each month, correct? Well, yes and no. It accrues, right? So if you pay, you, you've now accrued allowance or an allotment to shop against. So until you shop against it, right, we don't really collect it because we have to hold that inventory for you. So yes, it accrues, but um, and, and yes, it's recurring, but everybody wins, which is kind of the beautiful thing about it. It's flexible. We're not going to just ship you some box of stuff. You get to come in and choose what you need or what you want. Right? And, and our customers are generally, I think, working 
Um, they've probably got kids. They spend a lot of money on skincare. Um, they are smart because they realize, you know what, it is all the same, and you can get better or worse product in terms of activity. Um, but if you can get luxury product for without all the markups, why wouldn't you? Right. So she's a confident person. She likes to treat herself once a month or once every two months, and she loves the idea of it not being guilty. Right. You can get a lot of product from Beauty Pie for not that much, but it is the highest quality product. So this box arrives and it's like the fairy tale. <laughs> and you don't feel guilty for a second because actually you're saving money. Right. You could buy, you know, one face cream or you can get six or seven products from Beauty Pie of equal or better quality because you're removing all those markups. Do you have a sense of how many, what percentage of your customers are coming back to you monthly that are doing the 50%. 50%. Yeah. People order every second month generally. And do you have a sense of where where those, here in the U.S. at least, those pockets, where she's coming from? She's coming from the urban areas. So where you would expect, right? So Chicago, New York, Florida, Texas, and L.A., San Francisco a little bit. One thing you mentioned a second ago was just like removing the markup that say you would have to pay for retailers, like some of the ones, like the big ones here in the States, like Sephora or an Ulta or, you know, any department store. But one would argue that, you know, with direct-to-consumer companies, that there is now a different sort of customer acquisition cost that you have to pay yes. with digital advertising. It's the same. How are you approaching that? Well, you know, okay, so with digital advertising, basically... Facebook and Google are your new landlords, aren't they? Yes. So they take the 70%. So what are you guys thinking? Well, we have a, we have a membership model. So people we might pay that the first time, but we don't pay it ongoing because people come back every month because they have a membership. So like, are you think of Costco, right? They get the customer. The customer pays for their membership. And then the customer goes to Costco because that's where they have a membership. So it's really about satisfying your loyal existing customers versus, say, acquiring new ones right now? No, we'll or always try and acquire new ones. I mean, you can't. You have to grow, don't you? Right. Yeah. I mean, we want to be able to order 200000 of product X to bring the price down for everybody. So our prices can actually be even lower. You mentioned a second ago about catalogs with Bliss. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the companies we talk to today, whether they're digitally native or have an omni-channel strategy and their own standalone website within that, they are looking at more traditional tactics. Yeah. Like um, catalogs, direct mail, out of home. Is sure. that something that you guys are considering? Just because, you know, you've had such I've successes. Done it. Yeah, success I've done catalog. Um, not at the moment. You know, we're still scratching the surface in terms of our, you know, learning we, we really have just gotten started. So we're nowhere near, you know, having to send out a mail or ca order catalog yet. We're also really mindful of the environmental issues related to that. I mean, if, if you don't have to ship paper and print paper and create more landfill, I mean, it's bad enough doing business because you create landfill no matter how mindful you are about recycling. Um, and just to, to be printing catalogs, I get that it's another way to get in front of a customer, but it just feels like the way backward for me. What so I'll, I'll try and avoid it for as long as possible. <laughs> what about something more, you know, community focused? Like, you know, we're seeing all these brands kind of really focus on out of home in the sense of like community events or experiential. Oh, we'll do pop-ups for sure. And we do you think that that's something that, you know, may may lead to your own standalone stores? Is that something that you're interested in at all? Um, okay, we have to figure out. I mean, certainly a pop-up is a great way for people to try our product and then, you know, become a member. If they're, you know, if they try it, they realize, wow, this stuff is really quite incredible. I mean, I, I realized 
not that early on that every time I would send a box of product to a friend for their birthday or something, they joined. Right. <laughs> and it was like, gee, actually, it might be cheaper for us to just send boxes of product out to people than to pay Google or Facebook for advertising dollars, right? Because as soon as you get it, you think, oh, my God, I want this, this stuff again. is incredible. Of course, I'm going to you know, get a Beauty Pie membership because until you've touched it, you know, that you have to go on everybody else's recommendation. And we have a tremendous amount, you know, that I'm sure you know of Trustpilot. Right. Yes. So I'd nev- never heard of Trustpilot before my digital guy told me we've got to get on Trustpilot. <laughs> and so now we're like a 4.6 on Trustpilot, which is out of five, you know, pretty great. If you look at a lot of other D2C brands, they're nowhere near a 4.6 out of five on Trustpilot. And we have ra- like every review you read is just raves and raves and raves and raves. And then you'll have the odd one person saying, oh, I hated it. But then everybody else has given us five stars. So you know you're executing really well when you're, you're doing something like that. But it's still not the same as touching the product. So I don't know if I want to get into retail leases, but I would get into pop-ups, right? How do you feel about influencers in that now? It's um, it's very crowded, right? There's a lot of beauty influencers being pitched by a lot of beauty companies. And when I see, I mean, we have a few that we work with who just love the product and who are great representatives for us and can speak about the membership model, you know, very clearly and make it easy for their their audience to understand. I think there are so many beauty influencers who just every day are saying this new product is the best new product. I find that a little difficult to navigate because how can a customer or a viewer tell between, you know, one thing that they're saying and the next? And how is that transparent, which is kind of... It's not transparent either, right? So I think it's a little, it's a bit of a minefield. I think everybody knows that it's a bit of a minefield. And then there are also influencers who want to be paid up front, but you don't know if you're going to, if it's going to work for your brand or if their audience really going to connect with what what you're offering. So it's a bit tricky. We haven't talked much today about um, your past projects, whether it be Bliss or Soap and Glory. When you look at those brands and you know what you built them to be and where they are now, I mean, is there nostalgia? What do you, th- what do you think about them? Mm. Where do you think they are right now? You know what? They always say that the rear view mirror is really small, right? But the windshield is really wide. Yes. I don't really look back. I don't have time. You know, I don't have time to look back. If someone reaches out to me and says, hey, we're struggling, do you have any advice about this or that? I certainly will help because I don't want to see something struggling and I want to see a brand that I created do well and especially the people. So the people who work for that brand, I want them to have great livelihoods and to enjoy their time there. I mean, lots of people who I'm still great friends with work at Bliss still. Still? Yeah. And that was 20-something years ago, right? So... I, I want to see those brands thrive, but it's not my responsibility. So I can't, I can't look at it because I, I do like to do things well and I like to execute things well. And so if I see something going wrong that's not under my control, that would be difficult. So I try not to look. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. I think it's healthy. <laughs> it's very healthy. Knowing your past and knowing how you've been able to build and create these brands and then also pretty successfully exit from them and sell them in a short amount of time, is that something that is on the horizon for Beauty Pie? I mean, are you are you thinking about selling? Oh, no. You know what? So when I start a brand, it's funny because I've been um, just last week at the How I Built This Summit yes. with Guy Raz. Who Incredible. I, yeah, I love that podcast because... 
even, you know, every day or, you know, once a week, I will listen to whoever it is that's speaking because even if you just get one little nugget of advice from whoever's building their brand, it can really help you. So I'm a massive fan of that podcast and I've appeared on it. And um, I think when I build a brand, I don't, I'm not the type of person who comes up with a business plan and thinks about money. Like I could make so much money if I did this. I've never had that. I started Bliss because I had terrible skin and I went for a facial at a place where they sort of shamed me about my skin. And I felt so bad leaving. I thought if I could ever, you know, have a place like that, I would never make people feel like that about themselves. So that was, that's how that came to be. When I started Soap and Glory, it was actually a bit of a hobby because I love beauty products. By that point, I had nothing to do. I had a small child. I wanted a little hobby and I thought it would be fun to launch a product line in Harvey Nichols. And they were doing those, you know, collabs. And I thought I could do something kind of designery in the cosmetic space. Then suddenly, you know, it kind of was the... Became a thing. Yeah, yeah. it became quite a thing. So I, when it became such a thing that I, it, you know, at one point, sometimes you don't get to interface so much with the customer anymore. And my favorite part, really, of Beauty Pie is seeing the thrill, you know, via social, really, of people when we launch new products and how happy they are. And what's so wonderful about, you know, the new media channels and social media is that you really can connect with your customers and see how happy you're making them. And you can get instant feedback, and they can tell you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong, and so you can adjust. And it's like a big community. Previously, right, when your company got too big, you didn't, you, you don't get in any touch with the customer because the person buying the product is in a store somewhere, you know, far away from where you are in your office trying to solve a problem about X, Y, or Z. So I think this is really where I was meant to be because I am very democratic. I like to do things well. I think everybody deserves to get more for their money. And it's not just about beauty, you know, beauty pie is about telling people that they don't need a brand stamped on something to be good enough, right? They don't have to overpay for something to have self-worth. You can, you deserve more just by being you, right? Be smart and like believe in yourself. And it's, that's really what it's about. If you, if you work that around a product, right, a commercial enterprise, it seems to hold people's attention more. Um, and, and if you're just sort of talking about it and there's nothing to kind of anchor it to, it's harder to build that kind of movement. Women love beauty products. Our, you know, a lot of our self-worth is sort of tied up in how we look. So why not create something that teaches women and guys who love beauty products that, you know, it doesn't have to be expensive and you don't have to pay a lot to be worthy. And that's really what it's all about. And if I can still feel like I'm doing that for people, then it's worth doing. So I think I'm just getting started. And long may it last, because it's really a lot of fun and it makes me feel good every day. Perfect. Thank you so much, Marcy. It was great having you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode. And want to hear something that never goes out of style? Word of mouth. If you have a friend who you think would like or love the Glossy Beauty Podcast, send them a link to it. See you next week.